From the ACLU, this is At Liberty, a podcast about the civil rights and civil liberties questions of our time. I'm Mia Jacobs, a strategist here with the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Team, and I'm so excited to be a guest host for this episode. A quick note for listeners, please excuse the audio quality in this interview. Both Renee and I were doing our best in this time of COVID-19. The calls of activists have forced a national reckoning with the legacy of white supremacy in our country. That reckoning has led us to an examination of systems that exert control over Black lives, from policing to reproductive health care. There is a long history of the ways that reproductive freedom has been denied to Black women, and there is an important story of the ways that people of color, led by Black women, have built movements to liberate themselves and reclaim that freedom. Joining us to discuss is Renee Bracey Sherman, the founder and executive director of We Testify, an organization dedicated to telling the stories of people who have had abortions, and the owner of perhaps the coolest Twitter bio, the Beyonce of abortion storytelling. (laughs) Renee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm really, really excited. (laughs) Okay, Renee, so I'd love to orient our audience before we dig in with something simple. You're a reproductive justice activist. Give us the big picture. What is reproductive justice and where does this movement originate? Yeah, so reproductive justice is a human rights framework that was coined almost 30 years ago by a dozen Black women who felt like the pro-choice framework wasn't necessarily encapsulating their lived experiences around reproduction for themselves and also for people around the world. The reality is that there is not really a choice if you don't have access to any of your options. And so the tenets of reproductive justice were to make sure that everyone had the rights and resources to be able to decide if, when, and how to grow their families. And to be able to raise their families, their children, free from violence and coercion. I think what can be a challenge and frustrating for me is when it's used synonymously with abortion or in place of reproductive rights and reproductive health. And it's actually not. It is a very specific framework that goes beyond abortion and is trying to make sure that communities of color immigrant folks, trans folks, disabled folks, all are able to have their families, raise their families, decide, yes, maybe to have an abortion, but also to have several children and not fear of the state either killing them while they play in the park or taking them because they have outdated racist views of what parenting should look like. So it's really looking at all of our lived experiences and how our community and society impacts that. And I want to dig into all of this further, but teasing out a bit more what you talked about in terms of the differences between the movements, how have movements that fight for access to reproductive health care, reproductive rights been whitewashed? I mean, it's everything from the stories that are told to the photos that we see. One thing that really frustrates me a lot, the anti-abortion movement uses this and then the reproductive rights movement doesn't push back, but they keep saying that 
Well, Margaret Sanger. Can you tell us who Margaret Sanger is? Yeah. So Margaret Sanger was a nurse and a birth control activist around the turn of the century. Um, and she founded Planned Parenthood in 1916 because she really wanted to make sure that people had access to birth control. And she was arrested a number of times trying to sell birth control and offer it to women. The thing is, is that in order to get funding for her work, she worked with some really awful people, a lot of eugenicists of her time. But she's not the only white woman in history who has done that. Mm. And so what Margaret Sanger was saying, okay, well, let's make sure that we can get birth control to everyone, particularly people in poverty, because they felt like they should not be having children. And that obviously is not a reproductive justice analysis, right? And she was brought in with the support of a lot of elite Black people who were pushing to ensure that Black people had access to birth control because they saw family planning as a way out of poverty, which is a narrative we still use today. Mm. But part of it was that they felt that poor Black folks should just stop having children and that would by itself would help them get out of poverty and not actually addressing that there are systemic issues that make it that they cannot get out of poverty, right? I think Margaret Sanger is this firebrand that people focus on, but she's not the only one. And I think what frustrates me is that she gets pushed as this front and center and it ignores the long history of black and brown people who have had abortions and been controlling their fertility with birth control for thousands of years. Abortion has been around since as long as people could get pregnant, right? And so this idea that it began with Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger ignores the rich history of our ancestors who have been resisting, who have been controlling their fertility, who have been having abortions through And my favorite is that they see pomegranate rinds. Mm. And I think that ignoring that allows this idea and this white supremacist narrative that abortion and healthcare can only come from white people and not have been a resistance tool that people use, for example, during slavery, because they simply did not want to have their children born as enslaved people. Imagine how bad slavery must be that you are like, I would rather not have children at all so I can escape because I cannot subject another generation to this. And so to ignore that is really just, it does a disservice to our history and to our resilience and who we are. It's beautifully put. And I want us to get into that history a bit more. In a piece recently published in the New York Times, the poet Caroline Randall Williams writes, as far as family history has always told, and as modern DNA testing has allowed me to confirm, I am the descendant of Black women who were domestic servants and white men who raped their help. I am more than half white and none of it was consensual. White Southern men, my ancestors, took what they wanted from women they did not love, over whom they had extraordinary power, and then failed to claim their children. 
Wow. How does this legacy factor into conversations around reproductive justice? Yeah, that op-ed was extremely powerful. Yes. When she wrote the line that said, I have raped colored skin, it made me think of a story that I heard from my aunt in the last couple of years. Growing up, I'm a biracial Black woman, but I'm very light. And my aunt always made this comment, oh, you're light because of your grandmother. Mm. And I didn't really know what she meant because my brother is darker than I am. And like, he's obviously from my grandmother as well. Like, what was that about? And so one evening over some wine, she started to tell the story of my grandmother's birth that I had no idea. And that it was my great grandmother was a domestic worker and she had been raped by the white man that she was working for. And so I actually didn't know that my grandmother was biracial. Mm. I just knew she was a black woman and that was it. Right. And she also said, well, that's why you fight for women's rights. And that's why you fight for black women and abortion rights and making sure people have what they need so that they can make a decision for themselves. And I didn't know this story. I had no idea. Right. And it was just this reminder of how much those legacies exist in our blood Mm. and how much people will say we're so far from that, but we're not. Right. And so when people say we have to keep these monuments of the Confederacy and white supremacy up. So we remember the history. What history are you trying to remember? And also, who is forgetting? Because we can't forget. It's literally in our body and our blood. And the thing is, is that the people who are asking to remember it aren't bothering to remembering it at all anyway. Right. They are just moving forward and elevating these violent figures in history who the reason these statues exist is to dominate us and to remind us of our places. I I also think about the statue of J. Marion Sims, who is considered the father of gynecology. But where's the statue for Betsy and Lucy and Anarka and all of the enslaved Black women that he performed his gynecological tools, like all of his services on, because he believed that they could not feel pain, a belief that many white doctors, providers still have to this day, so that he could use it in service of white women, right? It is a very hard thing to be fighting for reproductive health, knowing that the very thing I'm fighting for was founded on Black bodies like my ancestors, Black bodies like mine, because they did not respect them enough. And so how do those who care about reproductive justice, how should we be understanding and honoring this history? That's such a good question. I think in terms of reproductive justice, it's really, really important that white people who care about reproductive justice I'm glad you all have found it. And that's really, really wonderful. And I would ask that you do the reading because sometimes what I can see is that there are white reproductive justice activists who 
get excited about it and get so loud that they actually silence the voices of people of color and poor folks and disabled folks and queer folks and trans folks, folks we are trying to center. And so I think it's one of those questions of, is this a, a moment that I should be leading or is this a moment that I should be learning? And then for folks of color, I think it's really important that we reclaim what is rightfully ours. Mm. I've been in meetings where I've heard white reproductive rights activists say, oh, well, you know, we were working with these women of color and introducing them to our issue. Wow. And I was so upset when someone said that because why is it your issue? And why do you assume that black and brown folks don't know this issue? And you know, there was a piece in the New York Times that just came out where a number of black and brown young people were interviewed about how they felt about reproductive rights. And they're black and brown people who have been working in other issues like gun violence, Black Lives Matter. And there was actually um, a couple of reproductive justice activists in it as well. And the critique they were giving was just so incisive and powerful because they were saying they don't necessarily see themselves reflected in the reproductive rights movement. And I am just, obviously it broke me as a reproductive justice activist because what I do is to make sure young people like them see themselves in our movement and it was this reminder actually of how I came into the movement because I didn't feel like I saw myself reflected in the conversation. Right after my abortion, I was 19. I actually didn't talk about abortion or didn't do any protest advocacy because after I had my abortion, I felt like my experience didn't match up with what I was seeing white political leaders debate on television. And it wasn't until I found reproductive justice that I felt like, oh, wow, here's where I belong. And people shouldn't fall into it in that way. I want people to know that they're already doing the reproductive justice work, particularly black and brown young people, because gun violence is reproductive justice, right? Black Lives Matter is reproductive justice. So they are doing the work, but I do want reproductive rights activists to take that critique and really see how we can be better and more supportive and including young people in the larger movement so that they see themselves. And I'll also say that we actually need to change who the leadership is. For a long time within the reproductive rights movement, the leadership has been older white women, not just the presidents and organizations that you see, but the actual, like all the senior staff, what would it look like to have a board with young people on it, right? Mm -hmm. And their voices valued? What would it look like to have leadership with young people who can make decisions? I think that that is how we change the conversation. And I think that that's fundamentally a reproductive justice framework because reproductive justice seeks to upend the entire system and recognizes that the system we have, the status quo, is not working. I thought their critique was so powerful because it's also a critique that we have heard 
for decades. If after their abortion, they come in and they do not see themselves, their stories, people who look like them represented in this movement or making decisions. And so just taking a step back to talk about these systems that you're talking about, you know, this national conversation around police brutality has pulled at these threads around housing inequality, education and justice, mass incarceration. And you said that Black Lives Matter is a reproductive justice issue. Unpack that for us a little bit. How does reproductive justice fit into our national conversation about police brutality? I think what the challenge is, is that when they see the reproductive rights movement, the only thing that catches headlines is Supreme Court wins or abortion bans, abortion this, abortion that, which is important. But the larger work of reproductive justice activists on the ground, particularly in the South, is not necessarily getting the same airtime. And so they may not see it. And they may go to a reproductive rights rally organized by a large organization and not see people who look like them. To your other question of like, how does reproductive justice fit in the larger conversation around police brutality? I think a really simple, easy answer is just like how much policing is centered in healthcare in this country. I think about how. There are so many people who are self-managing their abortions right now. And to be clear, self-managing your abortion at this point doesn't look like the pre-row days. Right. The coat hanger. It's not the coat hanger. Right. It's not the coat hanger. It's five pills. It's taking mifepristone and then taking the four mesoprostol pills the next day. But that's illegal in a lot of states to do your abortion without a doctor present. And so what we're seeing is people go to the emergency room because they think that something's wrong, even though they're just, you know, they're having the normal bleeding and passing the pregnancy that happens. But doctors or social workers or someone, maybe somebody who's anti-abortion, which is what has happened in a couple of cases, don't necessarily know and think that what they should do, or because they don't think that a person should have had an abortion, they call the police and then somebody gets arrested. We are criminalizing people for making the best decision they can in the moment. So that is how I think it's all tied into reproductive justice. So how does the current conversation around abortion and fighting for abortion access need to evolve so that it's more responsive to those realities? Because as you said, the current conversation is excluding those. Yeah. I think what we need to do is actually meet people where they're at and meet their basic needs. And I, I do call on donors and other people who you know, look at the annual reports and being like, what did you spend this money on? Recognizing that funding abortions and funding the work that reproductive justice organizations do needs to go beyond just the abortion. The abortion might be the beginning of someone's story, but it's certainly not the end. And they might be dealing with a lot of other things at the same time. And I constantly think about when I worked in the LGBT movement, that's when I first started sharing my abortion story because I was inspired by queer youth who were speaking out about their experiences. And I felt like, okay, well, I can't work with these queer youth and, inc- and ask them to share their stories with legislators if I'm 
being silent about my own. So I spoke out and one of my coworkers had said, you know, yeah, I had an abortion too, but like, I don't actually care about my abortion. I am dealing with the fact that I was homeless. I was also, you know, a survivor. I'm transitioning all of these things. And that is actually more important to me. Abortion was a thing I did. And it's okay if for some people, the abortion is just the thing they did. But also let's recognize the abortion was the thing they did that allowed them to continue organizing for another issue or to continue to take care of the children they already have. I think we need to stop seeing working with people who have abortions as a transactional experience and always asking something for them to like join our movement Mm. if we're not willing to show up for them in the way they need us to and the way that and with the things that they need to be able to continue to move on with their day and maybe that's paying rent maybe that's putting groceries you know on the table and maybe that's paying for an abortion right but we actually need to do the work of showing up So let's dig into this storytelling piece. You now run an organization that helps people tell their stories. Why did you decide to place your energy there? Why was that what you felt called to? Ooh, good question again. Um, I started putting my energy there because that was the place where when I joined the reproductive rights movement, I did not see myself reflected. And reproductive rights as distinct from reproductive justice. Yes. And I've joked that I started We Testify just so that I wouldn't feel lonely anymore because I was doing abortion storytelling work and I was often asked to be on panels and to represent like all women of color. And I was on panels with almost always all white people and the audiences were all white and I just felt so lonely. And so I really felt like, okay, well, how do I go get some friends? And so I thought about what would it look like to not just ask people to share their abortion stories, because again, I think that goes to the transactional piece, but actually invest in people who have abortions as leaders in this movement. Mm. And particularly the people who have experiences that aren't always, you know, part of the conversation. So trans men, for example, people with disabilities, lesbian abortion storytellers, undocumented abortion storytellers, incarcerated people, really making sure that we actually show what our real lived experiences look like. I really wanted to just upend how we do this work. I think it's so beautiful that you've built this community of storytellers. And I'm wondering if you've gotten any kind of healing from the ways that you felt censored or tokenized, or, you know, you didn't talk about your abortion for many years. And now you lead this organization of people telling their stories. What has this experience been like for you? Yeah, it's been incredibly healing. When a storyteller I am working with says, yeah, I felt really good about that storytelling experience, Mm. right? I felt really empowered and a piece of me just, you know, became whole again in sharing. That is how I judge whether my work is doing what it's supposed to do. I don't do this work 
to humanize people who have abortions for people who haven't. I don't think that it's fair that we have to, you know, beg for you to recognize our humanity. What I want to do all of this work for is so that other people who've had abortions or who are going to have abortions feel supported, feel less alone, feel the love and compassion that they see us. And that I think that I will be done with this work, probably never, but I really want everyone to have love and compassion and support during their experience, which I didn't. I was very alone. I was afraid to tell my family and I never want that to happen again. And, and to keep myself close to that is that I volunteer to help people who are like need abortions, like driving them to their appointments, right? They can stay at my house. Mm. We go out for ramen. I want their abortion experience to be the best healthcare experience with complete strangers as it possibly can be. Because mm. the reality is that so many people who are having abortions are doing it alone and in secret. And if they want to not tell anyone, that's absolutely their choice. But I still want them to feel loved and supported during it. And I want them to feel loved and supported when sharing. And so that is what keeps me going. It's incredibly powerful. Now that we have this new understanding and this new framework, let's talk about where we go from here. We just heard the decision in the June Medical Services case where the Supreme Court affirmed 5-4 that the precedent set in Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstead in 2016 still stands and that the Louisiana law targeting abortion providers was unconstitutional. What is the reproductive justice read of that decision? What are you taking away from the case? (laughs) Um, I'm taking away that Justice Roberts is doing a dog whistle to his little friends in the anti-abortion movement to try, try again. Mm. He kicked the can down the road. Obviously, you know, abortion access lives to see another day, but the fight is not over. Obviously, I'm happy that we won. And the reality is that he just said, do it better next time. Mm. And what I am thinking about and I'm worried about is that what they're going to do it on is bans like the 20-week ban or the race-selective and sex-selective abortion bans, which if folks don't know, those are super racist bans based on xenophobic and racist ideas. And I think I'm worried that the reproductive rights movement isn't going to be ready to handle that and to fight back because they're not necessarily putting us black and brown people in leadership. The reproductive justice movement has been pushing back on those bills, right? We have been calling them racist for a long time, but I I want to see more people, white allies speaking up and actually saying that these abortion bans are racist on their face. And we cannot stop there because we do need to push all of our leaders to actually have some proactive protections for abortion access. We need to repeal the Hyde Amendment, which is the federal ban on funding for abortion, which particularly impacts people who are on Medicaid. We need to make sure that young people aren't burdened by 
judicial bypasses or any other parental involvement laws. We need to make sure that incarcerated people and undocumented people are able to access abortion. You know, shout out to you all at ACLU for defending all of the Janes who, you know, were in detention centers and wanted abortions. And I would like to see the reproductive rights movement doing a better job of protecting pregnant and parenting young people and making sure that they get to stay in school, that they have the resources that they need to be the best parents they can. Yeah. So as you've noted before, you know, on this question about politics and how the politics of abortion bans play out, the Louisiana law that was just struck down at the Supreme Court, as you've noted before, was signed by a Democratic governor. And so we know abortion. Yeah. Yeah. And so we know abortion isn't a partisan issue. And yet it so often gets swallowed by politics. How do you approach conversations about abortion in such a way that they don't provoke those knee-jerk political reactions and that they don't get stuck in politics? A couple things. I think we need to have better conversations that, you know, anti-abortion political leaders come in all stripes and that the Democratic Party has been enabling a lot of these restrictions. We didn't get to half a dozen states with only one clinic just on Republican leadership alone. Mm. That is an inconvenient truth that we need to have. We also need to have a conversation about what abortion stigma on the left looks like. It's sidelighting the issue. It's not being able to say the word abortion. It's fundraising off of abortion, but not actually saying it. It's running as a pro-choice candidate, but not actually putting forth any legislation that has to do with reproductive health rights or justice. It's actually calling out some of our faves who are quote unquote pro-choice champions, but are not showing up for black and brown people who need reproductive health care in jails, who are incarcerated, who are on Medicaid, right? We actually need to hold our leaders accountable and we need better leaders. And I do my best not to actually talk about abortion in terms of Democrats versus Republicans, because one, that's not where my politics are at, but also some of the most difficult harms to abortion have come with Democrats helping. Mm. And I think, I mean, I can be corrected if I'm wrong, but the bill was written by a Democrat in Louisiana as well. And the anti-choice movement loves to say that. They love to point out that they have Democrats who are willing to help them do their bidding. Wow. And I think that we need to push back. And I also get frustrated when people say, well, this is what we have to do to win in the South. It is not. Because every single one of these cases that has gone to the Supreme Court, all of the resistance, all of the Black and Brown leadership on reproductive justice is coming out of the South. There are progressives in the South. There are black and brown progressives. And so pushing that lie, anti-abortion bills and all that pushback, any restrictions on people's families, Medicaid cuts, that is a white people problem. And it happens in blue states, red states, purple states. We actually just need to have a conversation about the way that 
racism plays and people's ability to decide if, when, and how to grow their families and for their families to thrive. Yeah. So Renee, this is incredibly hard work. It's personal work. It, as you talked about, is embedded in bodily generational trauma. Mm -hmm. What keeps you hopeful? (laughs) Um, Gosh, what does keep me hopeful? Um, What keeps me hopeful is the abortion storytellers that I work with. Mm. I mean, they are honestly changing the game. So I just think that the voices that are speaking out, just that keeps me hopeful. And then, of course, the future of young people. I think that every time my little niece you know, at the age of five is openly talking about abortion and asking questions and we're talking about, you know, racist suffragettes and like the suffragettes of color who came before us. And her curiosity just keeps me so excited and so hopeful. And to quote that movie, the kids are all right. Yeah. Beautiful. Renee, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for joining us. This was an absolute joy to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, take care of yourselves.